Good afternoon, Disciples Church, and happy Mother's Day. It's my privilege to read the scripture today, Mark 14, 53 through 65. Can we please rise for the reading? They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands in three days. We'll build another not made with hands. Yet even when their testimony did not agree, then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you not gonna answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck them with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. You may be seated. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to be with you once again this week. And we do, uh, as Dan mentioned, we want to extend a special, uh, special Happy Mother's Day to you. Thanks so much for being here. Um, moms, we're so thankful for you. We're thankful for our earthly moms. We're thankful for our spiritual moms, for the roles uh, that you play in all of our lives. And so thank you. We appreciate you and are glad that you're here this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is my privilege and honor to open up the Word of God with you this evening. And so if you have your Bible, would you please turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. I remember as a kid, particularly in junior church and children's church um, growing up, I remember one of our favorite games to play was telephone. And it goes by a lot of different names depending on what region of the country you're from, but we called it telephone. And so what that game is, is you'd sit down in a circle, we had about maybe 20 kids um, sitting in a circle, and someone would begin uh, with a message or a phrase or a sentence, and they would whisper to the person immediately next to them, and that person in turn would whisper to the person immediately next to them and you'd go around the circle and the whole point of the game ultimately or at least the theoretical point of the game was to see how close to that original phrase that original sentence you could be by the time you got back around to the person who started that game and so as a kid I remember really enjoying that because there was always there was always those moments where somebody accidentally said the wrong word or said something funny there was always the the precocious instigator in the group who took it upon him or herself to make it a funny sentence even if it wasn't already, and so you had all of those kinds of things happening, but try as you might, even if you were really trying to focus on what somebody was saying, it was really hard to get 20 people to all hear and repeat the very same thing. 
And I mention all of that to say, to say this. One of the things that makes the Bible so amazing, not only as a, not only as a piece of history, not only as, as the foundation for our faith and as the, the beacon and the standard of truth, but also what makes it such an interesting piece of literature is that you have 66 distinct books that are each written by a different person or at least written by a multitude of people over the course of time. They're written at, at different times by different authors. They, uh, authors. they cover history and prophecy and poetry and law and narrative over the course of about 1,500 years. And yet it all fits together incredibly well. I mean, it's shocking, actually. How, how well it fits together. And like any good storyteller, Mark in this text knows where it is that the story is leading. The climax, not only of the book of Mark, but really of the whole of Scripture, is in the text that we're about to dive into in the next several weeks. And as we approach that point, in this particular passage, we see several different plot points begin to pay off. If you're viewing it through the lens of literature, at least, that's what's happening here. It's like a good mystery novel where all along the way, the, the author has been leaving these bread, breadcrumbs for you to find, where you can begin to piece together what it is that's actually going on in the story. And at some point in any good novel, all of those breadcrumbs come together and they reveal a deeper truth. They reveal what's really been going on all along. And you even see this in the way that Mark writes. We've talked at length over the course of the past year and some odd months about the pace with which Mark writes this book. That he has a, a very no-nonsense manner of communicating. That he tells stories very quickly. He flies through the life of Jesus. He spares us all of the details. He really just gives us an overview, a snapshot of all of these different moments and all of these different pieces and sections of Jesus' life. But as Mark gets into the second half of this book, he really begins to slow down. As he's approaching the climax here, he begins to slow down considerably and he focuses a lot more on the particularities of the story. And as we get further into chapter 14 and ultimately into chapter 15, Mark's pace becomes nearly glacial. He wants us to see every important piece of information that he's laying out for us. As we approach the crucifixion, he's going to give us more detail than he's given us at any point of any story to, to this point in the book of Mark. Now, if you remember back to Mark chapter 3, in that particular section of Scripture, the Pharisees and the chief priests hear Jesus teach. They see him perform a miracle. And at that particular moment, they determined in their hearts that they were going to begin to plot the execution of Jesus. They had murderous intent in their heart. And so every time that we see the Pharisees approaching Jesus Christ and asking him questions and listening to his teaching and even challenging him at points, it seems as if there's a game of cat and mouse that's happening there. But what's really happening is the Pharisees, in their murderous intent, are trying to build a case against Jesus. Everything they do is with the purpose of destroying his reputation and ultimately with a hope that they can kill him. These religious leaders, these cultural icons, these people who are of good repute in their community, had nothing but a desire to put to death the man Jesus Christ. 
And in all of their efforts to build this case against Jesus, to demonstrate why he's a threat to Judaism, why he's a threat to the kingdom of God, why he's a threat to Rome, why he's a threat to individuals, they come up with nothing. There's nothing of substance that they can point to. And all of their desire to catch him at different moments, violating the law or teaching things that just don't quite align with what the Bible is going to instruct us in, they're they're unable to come up with anything substantial. And so finally, they abandon the effort to build a case against Jesus and they use the pretense of heresy as their means of arresting him and putting him on trial. And these men who had claimed to love the law of God and to live by the law of God and to be defenders of the law of God, these very same men violate the law of God in their desire to kill Jesus Christ. And we see that in this text in particular in several ways, but I'll just give you a handful of them. First of all, you see that this trial happens at night. And that's significant because at this time, a capital trial, a trial on which somebody was was actually on trial for their very life, was only supposed to happen during the daytime. And if a trial was necessary uh, at, at night, there was supposed to be a second hearing, a daytime hearing, in order for that person to be to be fairly represented in the law. Trials were not supposed to be held on festival days. These were times of the year that were incredibly busy, where people weren't paying attention, where where all of the local rulers were doing other things. And so, so there wasn't supposed to be trials held during those festival days at all. And yet in this moment, we find Jesus on trial at night in the middle of the Passover festival. And finally, in the case, in the case of a heresy hearing, It was required that two separate witnesses be heard personally overhearing this person blaspheme the name and character of God himself. And yet, in this instance, there are no two agreeing voices who can actually give testament to what it was that Jesus was supposed to have done. But as we already know, these religious leaders were not actually interested in justice at all. They had no concern for what was right. They had no concern for what was just. They were merely interested in eliminating a perceived threat. Someone who undermined their way of life by virtue of declaring the goodness and the grace of God toward people who didn't deserve it. They viewed Jesus as a threat because he demonstrated compassion and care and true sacrificial love for people who these particular religious leaders found to be distasteful and disgusting. And so in their desire to eliminate the threat that is Jesus Christ, we see this this trial that is a farce. And we find the opening description of that in verse 53. They, that is the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, they took Jesus to the high priest, to all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law, all came together. And when all these religious leaders came together, it was was an organizational body called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was generally made up of a group of about 70 leading intellectuals and religious scholars of the day. These were people who who were elite, they were educated, they were influential, they were powerful, certainly in the religious sphere. These were people who were well known to the community. And so all of these men from all of these corners of cultural life in Israel come together to, to demonstrate and to put on trial Jesus Christ. 
And so while it was an explicitly religious group, these are people who are theologians and writers and scholars and scribes and pastors, while these people had all kinds of influence in the religious sphere, they also had great political and legal power. But the primary means of power in the land at this time still belonged to the Romans. And these Jewish leaders in their hearts were hoping that the Romans would be the one to actually execute Jesus. They didn't want Jesus' blood on their hands. They wanted a little bit of distance. But in order for the Sanhedrin to be able to pass the buck on to the Roman authorities of the day, they needed to be able to construct a case that, that showed that Jesus had actually threatened the Jewish power structure and by extension created all kinds of problems for the Romans who at this time are are leading and ruling over this region. Verse 54. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards, and he warmed himself at the fire. And we're going to talk about Peter at length next week, so I don't want to get bogged down in this, but let's just point out briefly while we're here, it seems as if Peter is having a, a schizophrenic moment I mean, he had promised Jesus that to his dying breath he was going to be faithful. He had promised Jesus that no matter what it took and no matter what it cost, he was going to be there for him. That Peter wasn't going anywhere. That if it cost him his very life, he would stand next to Jesus. He would promised Jesus all of these things. And, but in the moment when the guards came into the garden to arrest Jesus, Peter runs. And here we see him again. He's following at a distance. He's, he's lingering back from where this trial is actually taking place, but he's sitting in a place where he can actually observe what's happening. He seems to have this deep-seated loyalty, and he seems to have this internal struggle going on in his heart. His faithfulness and his loyalty is being put to the test. And of course, we know ultimately what it is that he's going to do and how he's going to hold up to that scrutiny. But here in this moment, he's sitting here warming himself by the fire on a chilly spring evening, even as he watches this trial unfold. And here's what he's seeing, verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And here's what's interesting. Ordinarily, if you were going to build a case, a capital case like this, where someone's actual life was at stake, you would have had the evidence in place long before a trial ever began. You would have had your documents of evidence, and you would have had witness accounts, and you would have had everybody vetted for the story that they were going to tell. But these these members of the Sanhedrin are so hell-bent on the destruction of Jesus himself that they have abandoned all of the customary practices that were required under Jewish law. And instead, in the midst of the trial, as it's going on actively, with Jesus on the witness stand, are saying, does anybody have any evidence against this guy? Because we really want to destroy him. So if you, if you know of any reason why Jesus should die, would you please tell us? And you can imagine the kind of situation that they've created here. Where, where those who had gathered, certainly members of the Sanhedrin, potentially even those from the community who had happened to hear what was going on, show up at this place to share their interactions with Jesus. And so perhaps one of the Pharisees gets up and says, well, well, several years ago I saw Jesus heal the hand of a man who was withered, and it was a Sabbath day. 
And of course, that charge rang as empty as it sounds because Jesus had already provided his defense. Do you remember what he said all the way back in Mark chapter 3 when this hunt for Jesus' life began? Jesus said, is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? So somebody else popped up and said, well, I heard him teach on divorce, and what he said didn't quite line up with our understanding of the Mosaic law. And someone else that was sitting here said, well, but... But then he went on to explain that. And actually the way that he explained it made all kinds of sense in terms of the way that God works and and the way that Moses was communicating with the people on behalf of God. And finally somebody stands up and says, well, I saw him eat and drink with sinners. I saw him with Zacchaeus. You know that, that thieving tax collector that we all hate? And someone reminded him, yeah, but after interacting with Jesus, Zacchaeus went out and gave all that money back and then some. Their stories are so at odds with one another and there's so little evidence for Jesus that this trial is just chaos. Verse 57, then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. Here's what they said. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. So imagine how this is playing out. The chief priest had spent the whole of Jesus' ministry looking for evidence with which to charge him. They've been able to find anything substantial. So they open up this trial to anyone's accusations. They can't find corroborating witness testimony. And as all of these witnesses are giving their statements, it's obvious to those who are gathered there that they hadn't taken the time to get their stories straight. So finally... Some of the witnesses start to get on this one particular vein, this line of accusation against Jesus regarding a threat that he had supposedly made to destroy the temple. And understand this, if Jesus had actually threatened to destroy the temple, that would have been a capital offense. It would have been rightful cause for his execution. It would have been an act of sedition, an act of sacrilege, an act of terrorism. But Jesus never actually said that. Jesus said two things regarding the temple. First, he had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. Find that in Mark chapter 13, but certainly not that he was the one who was going to destroy it. Second, he had separately prophesied that his own body, which he references the temple, would be destroyed and that he would be raised from the dead. But nowhere in scripture, nowhere in Jesus' life or ministry, did he ever say that he had intention to destroy the temple. And so there's all of this confusion about the nature and the language of what it is that Jesus had said. And so even as they misrepresent this particular statement of Jesus, their testimonies still disagree. And by Jewish law at this time, this whole case should have been thrown out. The evidence, such as it was, was completely unsubstantiated. There was no witness who could verify the accusations that had been made. But of course, the goal of the religious elite was never to actually find the truth and mete out justice. Rather, this whole trial was a charade. And the outcome had already been determined. And we find something interesting in the following verse. The chief priest, who's overseeing everything that's happening, seems to be growing impatient and frustrated and angry that things haven't been going as planned. And so he does the most dramatic thing that any judge could ever do. He calls to the stand the defense himself. Then the high priest stood up before them, verse 60, 
and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. We talked about breadcrumbs in a story, and this is one of those breadcrumbs that we find. There's no explanation given here for why Jesus is silent, but of course we know that there is an explanation. And we find that explanation in Isaiah chapter 53, verses, verse 7, where this exact moment is predicted some thousand years earlier. And here's what the prophet Isaiah said was going to happen at this moment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In this single act of quiet defiance, Jesus is fulfilling an age-old prophecy about what it is that the Messiah himself would do. And in an act of irony that the chief priest himself certainly couldn't have expected or seen coming, here is what he actually says in verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. Here's another one of those breadcrumbs. To this point in his life and ministry, Jesus has been relatively quiet about his divine identity. As he healed people, he would often tell them, I want you to go and tell no one about what's happened here. I want you to leave this place and I want you to go off and, and live your life, but don't tell anybody what's just occurred. Why? Because it wasn't the time yet. It wasn't the time for people to know that this, in fact, was Jesus, the Son of God. When he healed people, he tells them, tell no one. But right now, in this particular moment, in the divine ordination of God himself, the time for Jesus' revelation has come. And Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Blessed One. And he says it, knowing it will cost him his life. Do you remember the passage last week in the Garden of Gethsemane where, where Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, you can do all things if it's possible. Let this cup pass from me. The brutality, both spiritual and physical, emotional and psychological that I'm about to go through. If there's any other way to do this, let's do it that way instead. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And this particular moment is a test of whether or not Jesus actually believed what he claimed. And unlike Peter, he comes through with flying colors. Because in declaring that he himself was the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, he was declaring in no uncertain terms, yes, I am, I am the one. And he was giving them all the evidence that they needed to put him to death. And in this very moment, we see a foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about next week. Here's Peter looking on from a distance by a warm fire, feeling this internal struggle between faithfulness and safety. Between loyalty and comfort. And here is Jesus knowing that to tell the truth will cost him everything. 
but being willing to submit himself to the Father's will on our behalf. And Peter, in this moment, in many ways, is a stand-in for you and me. We're waiting around the edges, calculating and weighing, running the cost-benefit analysis of what it's going to mean to follow Jesus Christ. How far am I really willing to go? How much am I really willing to pay? What does it actually mean for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And if it begins to cost me something, how much am I going to be okay with paying? And at what point do I step away? You understand that in a very real sense, these are decisions that people all around the world have to make on a daily basis. Decisions that to this point in our own history, we have largely not had to face at all. The question that should be on our minds as we read this ought not be a condemnation of Peter, but rather what would I do given the same opportunity? Given the choice between faithfulness to Christ, loyalty to the one true God, obedience to what it is that he's called me to do, and a life of comfort and safety and ease. What am I choosing? And in this scene, we get another picture from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8, which says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of all of us. But Jesus doesn't stop in this moment. He goes on to say in verse 62, he says, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the blessed one. And as if that wasn't enough, he then adds this, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that is God the Father, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And why in the world does he add this little sentence Why in the world does he add to his own demise here? What is it that he's trying to communicate to us? And again here, here's another breadcrumb. It's a callback to the language that we've seen seen Jesus use all throughout the book of Mark. One of his favorite monikers for himself is the Son of Man. And it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. We've talked about this ad nauseum, but I want to point it out because it's so significant in this text right here. In Daniel chapter 7, and by referencing it here, Jesus is saying, not only am I the Messiah, not only am I the descendant of David, not only am I the one true and rightful heir to the throne, not only of this world, but of the world to come, not only am I the blessed Son of God, I am also the Son of Man. I'm the one who's ushering in the spiritual kingdom of God. And I'm the one who is the rightful king and the rightful judge of all the earth. The irony of this moment is that in Jesus' declaration in reference to Daniel chapter 7, he is declaring that he, in fact, is the perfect judge who is enduring an unjust trial. That as it were, the judge has stepped down from his bench. He's set aside his gavel. And he's moved into the defendant's chair. In the words of one author, it's as if Jesus is saying, I am coming not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. I'm coming not to smite you with the rod, but to receive the stroke you deserve. 
I who deserve to go free will be condemned by justice so you who deserve to be condemned by justice can go free. Well, this claim is all the religious leaders needed to hear. And you see chaos erupt in this place. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. And the reference there is that everything he was wearing was ripped asunder, not just his not just his robes that declared his position of authority, but right down to his underclothes. He was ripping everything apart to demonstrate the grief and anger that he felt in that moment. And here's what he says. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. You see, when you come face to face with the true, real, historical Jesus, you will either embrace him as God or condemn him as guilty. And the picture that sits in front of us of what happens in this courtroom, in this moment, is a perfect mirror of what happens in the human heart. See, we're fine with Jesus when he's just a teacher. And we're fine with Jesus when he tells us to turn the other cheek. And we're fine with Jesus when he tells us to care for the poor. And we're fine with Jesus when he declares that we ought to live good lives towards our neighbors. But what do you do when Jesus starts to say hard things? What do you do when Jesus' declaration about who he is demands something of you that you don't want to give up? What do you do when Jesus commands or instructions to you, reveal things about yourself that you don't like or reveal things about God that you don't like? Who gets to be right in that moment? Who gets to define who God actually is? And the truth is, for many, many, many people, we love a God that cares about the same things that we do and thinks about people the same way that we do and holds the same morals and values that we do. But in doing so, we have constructed a God in our own image. We have changed the way that he looks, the doctrines that he holds, the declarations that he makes to fit our own worldview. And in doing so, we have no God at all. Verse 65, then some began to spit at him, They blindfolded him, they struck him with their fists, and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now when we read these words, there is a sense in which they are so familiar to us. The story of Jesus' trial, the story of his torture, the story of his execution has become so second nature for us that we don't stop to actually consider what it is that we're reading. But I want you to notice the language that he's using here. Here is the innocent Jesus. Here is the spotless lamb. Here is the perfect judge. And he never sinned. He never violated the law. He never hurt anyone else. He healed countless people. He shows compassion to the down and out. And he shows love to the unlovable. 
And here, these people who claim to love God with their whole being insult him and shame him, spit on him. They put a bag over his head. And as they cover his eyes from all directions, punches start flying. Jesus, our Lord, doubled over in pain. Kicked and punched and beaten. And as if that's not enough, they call out to him, prophesy. If you really are who you say you are, why don't you tell us who just hit you? This is a heart-rending scene. And if you stop and think about it long enough, you start to feel nauseated at the thought of what he's enduring. But lest we think of Jesus as a mere victim of happenstance, remember the breadcrumbs. That everything Jesus had done to this point led him inexorably to this very moment. Remember that in this act of betrayal and abandonment and cruelty, we actually see the unfolding plan of God at work. That this is how God's plan of salvation is set into motion, or rather that was set into motion from the outside, outset of time, is seen in this particular moment. That Jesus' trial and his ultimate death were not a plan B. This wasn't God trying to scrap together some means of saving his people after Adam and Eve broke things. And no, from the very dawn of time itself, God had determined that this was going to be the plan of salvation for his people. That this was the perfectly ordained, sovereign plan of God. And so we see in this moment a scarlet thread that runs through all of Scripture. That in that 1,500 years of time between Genesis and Revelation, we find Jesus on each and every page. That right from Genesis chapter two, after this, or Genesis chapter three, rather, after the sin of Adam and Eve, in that moment, as God promises and declares that the serpent, which is Satan, is going to bruise the heel of Jesus Christ, that is the death that's about to happen, that in that very same moment it is the Son, Jesus Christ, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And what we're reading about is the bruising of the heel. This brutal moment in history. And we find an unbelievable demonstration of God's love for us. We think about love in terms of, in terms of romanticism. We think about love as a high-minded ideal, but love in a very real sense is going, I love and care for you so much. I desire your good so much. I desire your joy so much. I desire your salvation and reconciliation and relationship with you so much that I am going to go to the ends of the earth. I'm going to go to hell itself on your behalf. This isn't a romantic ideal. This is true and deep and meaningful, passionate love that leads Christ to this moment. That the only person in the history of the world who could have rightly brought condemnation on us and on these people instead took condemnation on himself. So what does that mean for us? 
Well, it means a whole lot of things that we're going to talk about in the next coming weeks, but I want to give you at least two things to think about this evening. First of all, if this story is true, if this is real, if this actually happened, and it did, it means that when we find our salvation and our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, you become free from the past that haunts you. Because when you hear about the love of a Savior like this, the tendency of the human heart is to go, well, there's no way that God could love me like that. I believe that God loves other people. I believe maybe even in the idea that God loves in a very broad sense, but I can't believe that God likes me very much. I believe that God could theoretically love someone like that, but certainly not me. You don't know my heart. You don't know how many times I've failed. You don't know how many times I've screwed up. You don't know what marks my innermost thoughts. You don't know the doubts that I have. You don't know the things that I've done, the places that I've been. You don't know how broken I am. And so, yes, I want God's love for everyone around me, but I can't possibly imagine that God could love me that way. And you find that attitude demonstrated when people say things sincerely, meaningfully, when they say things like, well, I believe that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Because what you've done in that very moment, in the words of Justin Taylor, is you've redefined how it is that forgiveness and love actually work. See, forgiveness requires both a victim and an offender. And so to forgive myself means that I am playing both roles. And you don't get to be a victim and offender in your life. The sin that you committed, the acts in which you participated, the attitudes that you've held, the mindsets that you've indulged, the actions that you've bought into, all of those things worked up towards our condemnation. It's as if we were piling up God's condemnation on ourselves. But in this moment, as we begin to see the crucifixion narrative play out, what you find is this perfect, this perfect judge, this judge who understands justice in a way that no one else ever has or ever will. You see that very person, the only one, the only one who could rightly take out condemnation on others, saying, instead, I will take that condemnation on myself. And what that means is that when you are forgiven, you are forgiven indeed. That there is nothing left to be done. That there is no amount of work that you can offer. There's no amount of thanks that you can give. There's no amount of good deeds that you could ever do to pay God back for what it is that he's done in your life already because he's already done infinitely more than you could ever do for yourself. And it leads us to a place of freedom. Yes, I deserve the condemnation, but Christ already took that on my behalf. I'm free. That's a hard notion for us to understand and we'll talk about it at length next week. But secondly, the understanding of the judge who experiences injustice on our behalf leads us to be free to forgive others. See, if I've been forgiven, if Jesus took the eternal debt of my sin on himself, then what could possibly be, be perpetrated against me that cannot also be forgiven? And that doesn't mean that forgiving other people is an easy thing, by no means. It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly challenging. And by no means are we being asked to take forgiveness in a trite or easy fashion. 
But what it means is that ultimately, if I have been forgiven much and you have been forgiven, if you're in Christ, you've been forgiven everything. All of the sins you've ever committed, all of the sins that you are actively committing, all of the sins that you ever will commit if you're in Christ are forgiven, actively right now forgiven. That all of your sins when Jesus died on the cross were future sins, sins that you had yet to commit. They hadn't even been perpetrated yet. And yet somehow in Jesus' grace, he's already forgiven them. So if Jesus could take that on your behalf, then by what standard do we possibly hold the offenses of others over their heads? What right do we possibly have? See, when a wrong has been committed, someone has to pay. And either we inflict pain on others by withholding forgiveness and by clinging to bitterness, or we take that wrong to Jesus. We realize that the only person who should never have experienced wrongdoing experienced all of it on our behalf and put us in a position to begin to extend forgiveness to others. And that doesn't always happen instantly, and it's certainly not easy, but it's part of the calling we've been given as believers, and it has profound implications for your life. See, in this moment, had Jesus chosen, he could have called down legions of angels to put everyone in their place, but he didn't. He endured the shame and the mockery and the beating because it was necessary for the granting of our eternal life and for our reconciliation to him. So he went willingly to an unfair and an unjust end with you and me in mind. The perfect judge experienced unfairness and injustice so that you could experience true and lasting freedom. Thanks be to God for his grace and generosity towards us who do not deserve it. And may we find our hope in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what it is that you did on our behalf. And Lord, we haven't even gotten to the crucifixion story yet, but even in this passage, we're struck by the severity of what it was that you endured on our behalf. That you didn't deserve any of the treatment that you received. But you endured it on our behalf. God, that you did it so that our sin could be canceled so that the burden of our sin could be placed on your shoulders instead of ours, so that the forgiveness of our sins, which we could never earn, could be freely granted. So God, help us learn the lessons of the narrative of what we find in Scripture, that every page points to you, that there is a trail of blood that runs from Genesis 3 to Isaiah 53, to Daniel 7, to Mark 14. And that on each of those pages, in each of those prophecies, and in the narrative that we find, what we discover is a God who loves his people so much, not just in a sentimental sense, but with a passionate pursuit of our hearts, 
where you are willing to come after those who are living as rebels and enemies to your will and to your name. That you grant forgiveness, that you grant freedom when we have the hardest time believing that such forgiveness is even possible. So God, convince us of the things that we find so hard to believe. Transform our hearts and point us to you. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Amen.